We've been looking at Israel's journey through the wilderness in our series on the book of Numbers, and we've been doing so to learn from Israel's story and particularly from Israel's failures. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 5, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And so as we walk through our own wilderness journey between the time of salvation accomplished in the cross and resurrection of Jesus and the time of salvation completed in the time of when Jesus returns and makes all things new, we are to learn as the people of God today from Israel's prior experience and failure so that we might avoid the same failures along the way as we're walking toward our own version of the promised land. In the past couple of weeks, we've seen uh, Israel's rebellion induced by desire, longing for meat and a varied diet in the wilderness in chapter 11, and by envy last week in chapters 12 and 16. Today, in Numbers 13 and 14, the relatively, and I say that uh, advisedly, given that this is the book of Numbers, the relatively well-known story of the scouting of the promised land, scouting out of the promised land by the 12 scouts or spies that were sent um, by Moses to, 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 to see what the land was like. We come then in this story to the third cause for rebellion that we're looking at in Israel's journey, which is a very often, very often is a cause for our own rebellion in our own journeys through the wilderness today, and that is fear. Fear-induced rebellion. The Lord's command in verse 2, and if you have your Bibles, open up to Numbers 13. He tells Moses to send scouts into the promised land. Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. Their job, we're told in verses 17 through 20, is to do two things. To learn about the inhabitants of the land and to learn about the fruit of the land. In verses 21 through 24 of chapter 13, they do these two things. And they see the descendants of Anak, and they pick, up, they, they pick a large cluster of grapes, so large it had to be carried on a pole between two of them on their journey back. The story really begins or picks up the tension in the story with their report to the people after their 40-day journey of scouting out the land in verse 25. The report contains two pieces of data. First, verse 27, the land is rich. The scouts say that this land flows with milk and honey. And they no doubt then hold up the cluster of grapes for all to see and ooh and ah at. And they say, this is its fruit. So that's the first piece of data that they've recovered. The second, verse 28, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Anak was an ancestor, the ancestor of a clan of powerful men. And this clan is mentioned again in Deuteronomy and in Joshua. So these are the two points. Fruitful land, strong inhabitants, fortified cities. So what we want to do is look at the two responses to these two pieces of data that we see in chapters 13, at the end of 13 and beginning of 14, and what differentiates them. And then we want to think about this in light of our own lives and journeys through the wilderness. So these two responses. So the first response, the 10 scouts versus the two scouts is essentially uh, where I'm going with this. The 10 scouts say, yes, the land is good, um, but, and this is an important but, uh, indicated in the text in verse 28 with the word, however, the people are too strong. 
they say. We cannot go up into the land. We are not able, they say in verse 31, to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And their fear of the strength of the inhabitants of the land then leads them to exaggerate the challenges that they face in verse 32, speaking about the land that devours its inhabitants, which clearly it wasn't because these were large and strong people who were living quite well in the land. The 10 scouts problem, of course, is that they see only with human eyes. Uh, One clue to this is in verse 27. As they begin their report, they say, we came to the land to which you sent us. That's the way they describe the land. It's the land to which you, Moses, sent us. Whereas in verse 2 of chapter 13, Moses, or the Lord, describes the land to Moses as what? The land which I am giving you. So they're already off base in their perspective. They see the strong inhabitants in the fortified cities, and they make a, a, a significant miscalculation, we might say that leads them to think only of themselves and their resources and to be undone in the face of these challenges. They say that they seemed to themselves in verse 33, the last verse of this chapter, like grasshoppers, and we seemed so to them. Now, in the ancient world, the ancient world uh, we're told that grasshoppers are the smallest insect that people eat. So this probably has some connotation to we will be eaten up by these people. Um, that may be the reason they chose grasshoppers as opposed to other reasons that we might think of. Um, and so they, they saw themselves as inadequate to the challenge, afraid of what was in front of them. And they advocate then, out of this miscalculation about the resources, they advocate for a rejection of the Lord's command. We cannot go up. We cannot go in. And for a response of disobedience to what Yahweh was calling them to and giving to them as a way of saving their lives. And the people then side with the ten scouts in chapter 14, and they join them in their fear-induced disobedience. They even extend this, as we'll see here in just a second. In verses 1 through 4, um, their rebellion kind of festers into full bloom because of this fear. It says in verse 1 that they weep all night. In verse 2, that they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And then they say these words, "'Oh, would that we had died in the land of Egypt!' Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, verse 4, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They blame what they determine as their certain fate of death by the sword upon the Lord. And no longer is it just a matter of we don't have the resources. But now, in face of this challenge, in, in, the, in, in the face of this challenge, with what they see as a lack of resources, they then begin to reinterpret who the Lord is. He's no longer good. He's no longer for us. He's no longer rescuing us. But now, his purposes have turned bad against us. And we had better come up with a different plan in order to save our skin, because clearly God is no longer for us in the face of this challenge. That's what they conclude. It's a full-scale kind of rebellion. Even after Joshua and Caleb's attempt, which we'll look at in a moment, to get them back on track, their response in verse 10 of chapter 14 was to stone them with stones. Their fear had undone their faith. They wouldn't hear any of the appeal. 
Now, it's easy in some ways from a distance, quite a long distance between us and them, for us to look unsympathetically upon the Israelites in this story. But we need to remember the sure and certain fate that they thought they were going to, to face in light of the scouts' report. Uh, it might be helpful to think about this in a, uh, in a fanciful way. I mean, you know, if you think about you took my son's you know, under nine soccer team and said, we're going to put you guys up against Manchester United next week. And this isn't just a soccer game, but the winner of this game or the loser of this game and all of their supporters will be killed. And you think to yourselves, well, you know, I like these guys, but they're no match for these guys. And so suddenly it changes the stakes. You can't compete and rooted in a sense of inadequacy and resources that are not up to the game, we want to call the game off. We can think of a better way maybe to go forward. This just wouldn't be a really good outcome. So let's think about a different way. And that's exactly what Israel did. Faced against such long odds, they thought we need to come up with something different. And so they rebel out of their fear against the Lord. But in their fear, obviously, they lose sight of one key monumental game-changing fact. The Lord was with them. It's how scripture puts it how Joshua and Caleb put it. And this, this changes everything in their lives and in their situation. There's a wonderful story in 2 Kings 6 that pertains to the situation here in Numbers 13 and 14. It's about the prophet Elisha and his servant. And Elisha has been doing some pretty amazing things along the way up to this point in the story. One of which is he's telling the king of Israel where the king, or he's, he's telling the king of Israel about the king of Syria's plans to try to kill him. And so he foils the king of Syria's plans to kill the king of Israel time and time again. And the king of Syria gets angry and decides to come after Elisha. Elisha's staying in the city Dothan. And so the king of Syria sends his armies and himself, and they go and they surround the city. And in the morning, Elisha's servant wakes up first, you know, makes the coffee, looks out the window, and suddenly is afraid. He looks out and he sees the army of the Syrians gathered around Elisha and his servant. And he runs back into Elisha and says, Elisha, the army's here. We're doomed. There's no hope. Their resources are greater than ours. We're dead meat. And Elisha says to his servant, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then we're told Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of Elisha's servant and the young man suddenly saw a surrounding army of chariots and horses of fire all around them and all around Elisha. Caleb and Joshua's eyes were opened. They saw the same obstacles that the other ten scouts saw, but their perspective included the presence of the Lord. So in verse 30, Caleb exhorts the people after the however from the other ten scouts, the people are big and strong, stronger than us. Caleb says, with great courage and confidence, let us go up at once and occupy it. For we are well able to overcome it. And then in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 14, Joshua and Caleb say, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bread for us. No, we are not grasshoppers for them to consume. They are bread for us to consume. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. 
Do not fear them. They exhort the people. It's interesting, Joshua's name originally just means salvation, Hoshea, but then it's changed by Moses in verse 16 of chapter 13 in this account to Joshua, which means the Lord saves. And the Lord is who they put their hope in, in this moment of challenge. Joshua and Caleb say, we're not alone. God is giving us this gift of the land. The entire story that they are inhabiting right now as the people of God has been pointing to this point since God called Abraham in Genesis 12 and promised a people and a land. The promise of the people was partially fulfilled at this point. They were a numerous people in the wilderness. The promise of land was what they were aiming for. The trajectory of the narrative was heading to this great moment when they would go in and take what God had given to them by his grace and his mercy. That the, the fact that the Lord delighted in them, as they say to the people, was obvious to Joshua and Caleb because of his past faithfulness. This was the Lord who had parted the Red Sea, the Lord who had provided them with manna miraculously to eat along the way in the wilderness, who had given them water to drink in the desert. He had spoken to them on Mount Sinai and showed them his will and his word. He had led them daily through the wilderness up to this point in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He dwelt in their midst in the tabernacle. And this was the moment that they had all been waiting for. Now to enter into this full, the fullness of what God had promised. Yes, God was for them, they said. Yes, God was with them. They knew. And that meant that the challenges that they faced in front of them, yes, which were great, and yes, which induced some kind of fear, were not significant enough to stop them from obeying and walking with the Lord into this next step. This is the repeated testimony of the scriptures, this kind of response. Why should we not fear? It's never, ever, ever because we are greater, because we are stronger, because we are more skilled or more trained, because we have the resources that it takes to meet the challenges that we face. It's always because the Lord is with us. You know this Psalm, Psalm 23? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Or as we read earlier in Psalm 118, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. And we could go on and on and on. The ten scouts and the people who had been convinced by their argument were comparing their strength and military skill to the strength and military skill of the inhabitants of the land. In that comparison, from a very human perspective, their conclusion was correct. But with the presence of the Lord, the comparison changes entirely. And that's what Joshua and Caleb could see. God is all that we need. And this enables them to push through probably their initial fear and in seeing these, uh, mili- the, these strong people in the land and to respond to the Lord's call in faith. 
That's what Jesus encourages of his disciples on the boat that we read about in Mark 4. They were no match for the storm. They couldn't handle the storm, but he could. And so he speaks to the wind and the waves and says, peace, be still. And then he speaks to his disciples and says, why are you so afraid? Do you still lack faith? So what about us? Does our faith in the Lord and in his presence with us enable us to overcome our fear rooted in our lack of resources and to respond in obedience to God's call, trusting in his goodness toward us in the day-to-day? Think for a moment about how much the Lord has shown us his faithfulness to us. He's provided so much for us in Jesus. This is a great advantage we have over the people of God in numbers, is that we've seen the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He's covered our sins. He's forgiven us. He's healed our shame and our guilt. He's given us a purpose as his image bearers in the world who live, who are called to live a life of love together. He's poured out his spirit upon us. His very presence lives inside of us, his power. And he's called us to be faithful, to walk with him, to reject sin, to live a life of holiness, to bear witness to him in word and deed. He's called us to each other in this community at Church of the Cross to bear one another's burdens, to live together with one another in harmony and peace in service and love. He's called us to the poor, to being generous, to being his hands and feet, to meet the needs of those who don't have enough. He's called us to fight for those who are dealing with and struggling from and victims of injustice in the world. He's called us to reflect his heart for this as we live day to day in our lives. This is our pathway to the promised land, a God who's provided everything for us that we could ever need, in his son Jesus, and a God who now calls us to be his people and to walk as people of love and justice and mercy and generosity in the day that we live. It's not an easy pathway, and the foes and challenges for us that we face on this journey, while they're not giants in Canaan, can be very substantial. And when we look at those challenges, can I really love this person, Lord, that I'm in in this relationship, but I don't know that I've got what it takes to to deal with this person and to really care for them. That's a challenge. Can I overcome this habitual sin that's afflicting my life and continues to cause me guilt and shame? I don't think I have the resources for this. Can I continue to trust you and offer up my resources to those in need and to the work of the gospel going forth in the world, even when I struggle to know where I'll make ends meet, or how I'll get what I need. Can I really speak of you, Jesus, to people in my workplace or in my classroom when there's so many rules for why I shouldn't do that and when there's so much risk that if I do so, I'll be dishonored or shamed or ridiculed or mocked? Can I handle this pain that I'm living in right now? Maybe it's just the pain of a general broken world. Maybe it's a very specific pain. Can I handle this? In light of these challenges that are part of our challenges as the people of God, our own resources seem incredibly inadequate and considered only from a human eye. 
Our resources are inadequate. But with God on our side, with the Lord as our helper, with the Spirit of God living within us, the answer to all of those questions that I was just posing before us is a resounding yes. We can. Not because of our resources or because of our strength. Far from it, but because the Lord is with us. In fact, the way that God seems to operate with the Israelites and with us in our own lives and journeys through the wilderness is that he likes us to bring, it, to bring us to the end of what is humanly possible because he knows just how much we love to depend upon our own resources. We love to trust in our own horses and our own chariots, in our own intellect and our own bank accounts, in our own study and our own skill, our own resourcefulness. We love to be our own MacGyver. But God seems to specialize in bringing us to the place where we cannot trust in those resources anymore. And that's when he begins to do his refining work in us. That's when we're really called by him to exercise faith in a God that we cannot see. That's what he did here with Israel. And they failed the test. And when Paul says, I want you to read this story and I want you to learn from this story for your own journey through the wilderness, he's saying, I don't want you to fail the test too. The resources are, are far greater than the challenges that we face. You know, at the end of the day, the Christian life is trusting God to do what none of us can do. That's the heart of the Christian faith. It's trusting God to bring life from the dead. At the heart of our story is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's bringing life out of death. It began that way with the call of Abram and Sarah as God brought life out of their deadness in the person of Isaac. And his, greater, his, his descendant long, long down the line is a man that God raises from the dead. We all face our powerlessness at one point or another. And the choice can often be made in the face of that powerless, powerlessness to reject the Lord and to pursue our own way of saving our own skin, figuring out life on our own terms. But the call of the Christian life in the midst of our journey through the wilderness is to cling to this Lord in the face of the greatest of all challenges, which is, of course is death itself. Jesus has made it to Canaan. That's so important. The Israelites didn't have the opportunity of saying anybody had gotten into the promised land and was okay. As we look out upon our journeys right now, we can say there is a pioneer, there's a forerunner, there's an author and perfecter of our faith. So as, as the author of Hebrews is encouraging, encouraging us to run the race with endurance, he says, look at Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus. He's already gone before you. He has overcome. And now in some real way, you are seated with him in heavenly places. Assured of a final victory. Assured of overcoming. What a tremendous encouragement that is to us in the midst of whatever challenges that we're facing today. Whatever fears that are pervasive in our lives and our hearts today. That Jesus has overcome. Jesus is there. Which means that for us, in the midst of a race that is long sometimes, that is hard sometimes, that does provoke a lot of fearfulness in us at times, that perhaps the best thing that we can do to endure is to look to the one who did endure to the end, 
and who is on the other side and who beckons us to himself and promises to never leave us or forsake us and gives us himself that we might walk faithfully through the wilderness. I want to end with this uh, hymn written by John Bunyan. Who would true valor see? Let him come hither. One here will constant be, come wind, come weather. There's no discouragement shall make him once relent to be a pilgrim. Whoso beset him round with dismal stories, do but themselves confound. No lion can him fright, he'll with a giant fight, but he will have a right to be a pilgrim. Hobgoblin nor foul fiend can daunt his spirit. He knows he at the end shall life inherit. Then fancies fly away. He'll fear not what men say. He'll labor night and day to be a pilgrim. He's with you, and he's far greater than any challenge that you face. And you can count on his faithfulness and goodness in everything. Today, tomorrow, the rest of this week. Amen.